Just before we start, this episode has some references to violence and other adult themes that might not be suitable for younger listeners. Hello, and a very warm welcome indeed to this gathering of the Graham Norton Book Club. It is time to divorce yourself from your email, split up with your Snapchat, consciously uncouple with Zoom, and break up with your ex. It took a while, but we got there, do you see? And turn your full attention to the books and authors we have lined up for you. Starting with real-life screenwriter and prize-winning novelist, Sarah Collins. Uh, Sarah, I believe we should be keeping our eyes peeled for you in the new series of The Crown. Is it true? Is it true? (laughs) I've told them that's only going to happen if they get Beyonce to play me. (laughs) (laughs) But but actually, I am going to meet the other queen because I'm off to Clarence House next week um, to meet Queen Camilla. Oh, lovely. Remember last time I mentioned that I've got to interview all six of the Book of Shortlistees at the same time at the South Bank? Yes. I think it's my reward for that because she rather famously is a big supporter of the Booker Prize and, and she's got her own book club. Shall I not mention it though? She's got her own. Oh, go on. Of... Oh, don't mention it. Yeah. <laughs> she's got, she, we know this is the best one, but she's got her own Instagram book club as well. So she's, she's clearly very bookish and a lover of all things literature. Okay, well, at least there's something to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) What's have you been in Sweden as well? I have got. I am getting around, aren't I? I've been in Sweden because I'm writing a Swedish spy thriller, and so I spent a very entertaining evening with a Swedish uh, police detective. Uh, And I can't tell you anything we talked about, Graham, because if I did, I'd have to kill you. Okay. Well, you've got range, Sarah. You've got range. <laughs> Where will I be next? We've gone from cows to Camilla to Swedish police. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, sticking with the theme of social climbing, our book this week is Aravind Adiga's Booker Prize winning satire, The White Tiger. A rags to riches story set against a backdrop of capitalism and call centres in a version of modern day India. Here to discuss it are Jared, who chose the book for us, Gabby Gavern, and Jeff. Hello, everybody. Hello, Graham. One they roared. Marvellous. Uh, lovely to see you all. Uh, Gabby, I haven't seen you for ages. You've been busy being a doctor around the place. Oh, that's it. I, I actually had a power cut in an exam this week, um, an online exam. So I don't feel like I'm being congratulated currently. It's been, oh. been a long couple of days. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. In better oh. news, when last time we had a book club meeting, uh, Cherie was swanning around a hotel and I believe Gavern, you've seen some hotel action. I, I've managed to get like a, a voucher thing for this top hotel in Mayfair, wow. which is beautiful. Mm. I actually didn't want to go home. You know, it's one of those places where, you know, you hold a glass up and it just gets filled up before you even ask for anything. Um, so I just ended up staying an extra night, though, right? Because Ooh. we just didn't want to leave there. Really Voucher be damned. Leave. I vote an in-person recording there. And Jeff, when, when's your... You're going to be a granddad again, aren't you? Yeah, uh, so um, grandchild number eight is coming along in April. Oh, well, congratulations in advance. Hey, congrats. Oh, yeah. We've got... Uh, Five grandsons and two granddaughters at the moment, so... Um... <laughs> I like it, at the moment. It's like, it's like a yeah. clock. <laughs> Tally. And what have you been up to, Jared? Anything? Uh, being sick. Oh. Oh. oh, I was out last Saturday and then got the bug that's been going around at the moment. I've been dodging it pretty well, but yeah, it got to me. So apologies for any problems with my voice today. 
Oh, you sound marvellous. Marvellous. Elizabeth, we'll come back to you all in a bit to discover whether you thought the White Tiger was a roaring success or a howling disaster after we've spoken to Aravinda Diga himself and after Sara has given us her three of the best. And Sara, I believe you're after causing a bit of a stir. Well, I mean, I think it's well established that I kind of like being a troublemaker sometimes. Um, <laughs> that might explain why actually one aspect of the White Tiger I found really fascinating was something external to the book, which, as you know, is that after it won the Booker Prize, there was this strong protest against that from Indian critics who had been offended by the novel. And that got me thinking about how... So many of the books I love actually have famously touched a few nerves. So I've got a few of those up my sleeve. Um, Books that caused a bit of a stir. Okay. Well, since we're toying with tales of changing fortunes, here's a success story. The walls were covered in medals and photographs of victories, including one of the triumphant West Riding team on an open-topped bus tour through Wharfdale, all wearing dark glasses. We'd been partying all the night before, explained Valant. So we were bloody hungover. Having kept more clean sheets, football slang for matches where he hadn't let in any goals than any other England keeper, Valant, on retirement, had found niches in markets all over the financial world and become exceptionally rich. You might know Catherine Parkinson from her roles in hit comedies like The IT Crowd, Doc Martin and Significant Other. But she's also the voice behind the audiobook of Jilly Cooper's latest blockbuster, Tackle. And we'll be asking her about that experience later on in Talking Books. Okay, time to get into the cage with The White Tiger. Balram Halwai is from what he calls the darkness, India's vast rural population of the poorest of the poor. His parents die when he is still young, and he's taken out of school to earn money for his sister's dowry. But his grandmother spots how bright he is and calls him a white tiger, a rare animal who can, perhaps, change his situation. He becomes a driver for a family of corrupt local landlords, first in his hometown and then in Delhi. His master, Ashok, is very wealthy and spends most of his time bribing government officials to solve his company's income tax problems. One night, when his master's wife, Pinky Madam, is drunkenly driving the car, she hits and kills a child, and Balram is expected to take the blame. The book is written as a series of letters from an adult and now wealthy Balram to the Chinese premier, Wen Jibao. He tells Wen the story of his life, as well as offering his commentary on Indian society, its caste system, its capitalist obsessions, its corrupt government, and the plight of the poor. He talks about the rooster coop, the cage that traps India's underclass, and his, Balram's, strategies for escaping it, strategies that eventually include murder. The White Tiger was Aravindadiga's debut novel. It came out in 2008 and won the Booker Prize that year. It's been hailed as one of the best books to come out of India in recent times and has since been turned into a hit Netflix film. When Aravind and I spoke, I started with whether he'd set out to show a side of India people might not be aware of or if he just had a great story to tell. I think the primary thing for me was was the question, um, what is the price a man would pay to win his freedom in India? You need something that primal to drive the writing of a book because it's a lonely business. It can't be anything else. It has to be something that that connects viscerally with you and hopefully with the reader. 
The book began uh, in 2003 when Time magazine sent me as a reporter to India. I was born in India. I lived there till I was 16. I was very struck by something a South African visiting India told me in 2003. He said it was incredible to him that he could walk about New Delhi, Mumbai, Calcutta at any time of night without any fear, coming from South Africa, a place with a lot of crime. And he asked me why, given the fact that India was a country like South Africa with these enormous divides of class, given the level of poverty, given the level of ostentatious display of wealth, why don't more poor people take to kidnapping crime? Why is it that people can just walk about with jewels, you know, at 11 p.m. at night in Delhi? Uh, This began, you know, my thinking about why is it that Indians have domestic servants in a way that I think few other uh, nationalities do, who are paid astonishingly little, who have extraordinary access to your life Mm -hmm. in the sense they can walk into your house, they can walk into your bedroom. Why don't people commit more crime? And this is linked to the idea of personal freedom. Because, you know, when you ask people, uh, my friends who, who are drivers, aren't you worried when you're talking about, you know, this bag of cash you're taking in the car to give to the minister? Yeah. Aren't you concerned about the fact that you're openly discussing these three affairs you're having, two of them with women, one of them with a man, in the back of the car while your driver's listening in? And, and the standard answer would be no, we're not in the least concerned because we know where this driver lives. He's not a stranger to us. We know his family. The idea was that the driver didn't have the freedom to act, even if he had the impulse to commit crime. If you did something like this, like, you know, uh, betray a master, steal money, or heaven forbid, kill someone, your family would pay the price in a sense. Your identity as a human was linked to a much larger identity as a family man, as, as a member of a caste community, and you couldn't break that identity. And this got me thinking, what if someone in India actually did this, yeah. actually broke all links to his past, his family? What price would he have to pay? And, and, you know, who would be prepared to pay such a price? This is the whole genesis of the idea of, of a driver who actually does the unthinkable, who kills his master, takes the money and runs and loses his family, his background in the process. And as a Western reader, yeah, we have a vague idea of the caste system, but the vaguest. But Balram in the book suggests that even in India, it's not completely understood. India is so complex that, that people in India themselves struggle to understand not just the original caste system, which is complex and baroque enough, but the changes that have been wrought by governmental action since 1947 when India became independent. So you have a very complex hierarchical traditional system which has been changed profoundly by modernity. And the net result is to create something that very few Indians can themselves understand entirely, which when you ask someone to describe, this was my experience 15 years ago in New Delhi, you ask someone to describe the caste system, they would say, it just comes down to power. It comes down to people who have land and people who don't have land. Or as I put it in the book, or as Balram puts it, people with big bellies and people without big bellies. Now, Balram isn't at the very, very bottom of the hierarchy. He's about two-thirds of the way down. And he's conscious of people below him, and he's not particularly sympathetic to them. People low down the totem pole in India aren't often sympathetic to anyone who's below them. Uh, I didn't want to have a sentimental portrait of someone who's just wonderful and very progressive. He's, a, he's meant to be a problematic figure. And when Balram does break free and he's a successful entrepreneur and he's got his cars, it, it's, he finds his own kind of moral compass then. He does his version of, of what's right. Are you saying he could afford to be moral? Yeah, that was what I was trying to explore, whether he would change once he had more freedom, once he had the choice, which he had lacked at the start. And the last few pages of the book is something I took a very long time to write and delayed the writing of the book for a couple of years. How would he actually behave 
if you had a certain amount of money, if you were free. And, you know, the editors and the people who first read the book asked me why it didn't end with him killing his master and running with the money. And it was important for me to continue into this coda. Given a choice, he would act differently. He wouldn't be the man he had been before. You know, there's a whole side to him that he hasn't explored before because, uh, yeah, exactly as you're describing, given a choice, he might flower and blossom into someone very different. And Jared, who chose the book, one of the things he's interested in is your attitude to people outside of India reading the book. What interests you about the impression uh, Western readers get from, from the book? When the book came out, the only place where it did anything was in India. And that was for six months after publication and before it made the long list for the Booker Prize. And I was under the impression that people outside India just couldn't understand a thing about uh, what was being said in this book. You know, it was clear to me that India's future, in a sense, was critically tied to how it managed its relationship to China. Because the book was triggered not by the arrival of someone from the West to India, but by a real event, which is the premier of China came to India. He came to Bangalore which is India's city of outsourcing and technology, because he said he wanted to find out the truth about India. The whole idea of the book came about with, with my imagining this man, Balram. He's up late at night waiting for his taxis to come home, and he's just seen this newspaper uh, saying that the premier of China is visiting Bangalore because he wants to find out the truth about India. And this just, just gets him going all through the night and through the next night and through seven nights. It was clear already to me the West is just not as important anymore in India uh, because for good and for bad, India's future is going to be determined by how it deals with the Middle East and with China. And this book does explore that, the, the future of India outside of its old relationships. You say the West isn't as important, but I get the sense that the book became controversial in India once it had found success in, in Europe and America. The book was controversial, yeah, uh, from the start. But, you know, India is a country where uh, controversy is good. India is a free country for all its, its numerous other problems. As it's often been mentioned to me by people who dislike the book, India is the only country in South Asia where it could actually have been published. Uh, uh, one of the flaws of the book is that it doesn't give you a sense possibly that India is a country where a book like this could sell well. Uh, a book like this couldn't have been written then or now about Pakistan. Uh, it couldn't have been written about Bangladesh with the author continuing to live in those countries. So India is a free country and controversy is good. And there are some people who uh, who are always going to be upset by this and I think that, you know, it's a mixed thing. It's, it's, I wish more people liked it, but uh, <laughs> the fact that it gets under the, someone's skin now, 15 years later, is a good sign. Well, also, I think a lot of people love it, but let's talk about books that you love. Uh, what's a book that turned you on to reading? I'm guessing you were quite a bookish young man. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I, uh, there's a book called The Guide. Uh, it's one of the most famous Indian novels ever written by a man called R.K. Narayan. Uh, and... I read it when I was a boy, as everyone in India did, and it got me onto, onto reading because it's the quintessential Indian story. It's the story of an Indian con man called Raju who one day stumbles into a village where the villagers think he's a, he's a holy man. He, he realizes that he can, he can have a good life if they, if they just imagine that he's a, he's, a, he's a sadhu or a god man. But after a while, he, he actually starts to become a good man in the sense he's so impressed by the effect he has on other people. And he realizes he's never had a chance to be, you know, holy or spiritual. And he actually starts giving people good advice. And this ruins him and kills him. <laughs> and he finally decides to go on a hunger strike to help someone and he starves himself to death. Now, I think this is the story of India because it's a country that's been mistaken by other people, by outsiders for being a spiritual nation where anyone who lives here knows it's not. But in a sense, having been mistaken for being, you know, Gandhian, sacred, holy nation, they've actually tried very hard to become a better country. 
And whether that will save us or kill us is just, is just uncertain. So that book got me onto reading. Well, I hadn't heard of that book, but maybe you've got another book that uh, not enough people know about, something that you felt should have had more fanfare. I travel a lot in South Asia. You think much more critically about India when you travel in the region. And one country I've been to a lot recently is Nepal. Um, Nepal, the um, you know home of Everest and so on. It's one of the most beautiful countries in this region, and it's also one of the poorest. There was a book published called... Uh, the House of Snow. It's an anthology of writing about Nepal. And it just changed the way I see this country, which uh, is so beautiful and yet the poorest country in South Asia and the most troubled. And I wish more people would read it and, and, and understand you know, some of the issues that Nepal is going through because it's, it's just such a special place here and such a troubled place. And then the final book we're looking for is the one that you admire so much. <laughs> you kick yourself that you didn't write it. Okay, this, this is going to be an unusual one. It's called uh, Wake and Fright. It's an Australian novel by a man called Kenneth Cook. It was published in the 1970s. You know, I spent a couple of years in Australia when I was 16, and I hated it. But I went back subsequently. And, and when you wake up in a pub, you know, in the middle of nowhere, in the outback, you know, with a bad hangover, this book is what will come to your mind because it's the truest expression of waking up in the middle of nowhere, not knowing where you are, being surrounded by kangaroos and very strange people and trying your best to get home. It's one of the best books I've ever read about Australia. And um, it's a classic there. And the movie is great, too. It's the greatest Australian film ever made. Arvind Adiga with a bit of a movie review, his reading loves and some thoughts on his own. Booker Prize winning novel, The White Tiger. And Zara, when the book came out, it caused quite a stir in various quarters. But I suppose rubbing people up the wrong way, it's, it's kind of an important part of what writers do, isn't it? Absolutely. I kind of found myself nodding along there, especially when Adiga said that his book still gets under people's skin even now, 15 years later, and that's quite a good sign. Because I agree. I mean, sometimes a book has to put people's backs up to do what it came here to do. Actually, the, the most famous example is by another Indian writer, right? Um, Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses. Yeah. It's been, I think it's been more than 30 years since the fatwa was issued against Rushdie following that book's publication. And yet, as you know, he was just attacked earlier on stage this year in New York. It was awful. It was chilling. It was a reminder of the courage it can take to publish certain novels. But I'm actually going to start my official list with a book that's been getting onto people's skin for almost 200 years. It happens to be one of my all-time faves. You either love it or you hate it. And I'm interested to know whether you love or hate this one. It's Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Oh. Is that a love? Well, it's a love, but then it doesn't, it doesn't end. I, I do have a problem that you're kind of like, what, there's more? It doesn't need any introduction, I don't think. Because, I mean, come on, you know, Heathcliff, Poor Orphan, Windracked Farmhouse, Quasi-Incestuous, Toxic <laughs> Obsession with his foster sister, Kathy. Pretty much a cultural staple. Um, yeah. But the thing is, I love Wuthering Heights, but I also love the fact that Anne Tyler said in an interview once that when she found out that several of her woman friends considered Heathcliff their all-time favourite romantic hero, decided she had to read the novel for the first time. And so she got three quarters of the way through it before she put it down, and as she put it, immediately developed serious concerns about their mental health. <laughs> Because it's kind of true. I mean, in fact, when the book was published, um, there was a sort of 19th century version of a backlash against it. It wasn't quite banned, but the prevailing opinion was whoever wrote it must have been a wrong un. 
But I'm sticking with it because I think it was controversial because it was revolutionary. And it was revolutionary because it was one of the first truly psychological novel. So it doesn't shy away from the whole truth about human psychology, including the worst of it, which is why those 19th century critics called it vulgar and depraved and sickening. All right, let's move on to your second choice, please. So speaking of cultural staples, my number two choice is fast becoming a cultural staple, I think. It's The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. It initially takes the form of Letters to God, written by Celie, a young black girl in the American South. And what she's getting off her chest is the abuse that she suffers at the hands of her stepfather and then the kind of nasty piece of work that he marries her off to. But I think what has made this novel so enduring is that it takes this truly wonderful triumphant turn. I remember reading it for the first time in the 90s sometime. And by the final scene, I just wanted to stand up and cheer for Celie. It's like the story of her path to self-love, which leads her into a juicy affair with her husband's fancy woman, but also a kind of beautifully defiant self-confidence. And so the ending of the novel is a happy one. It's a story about transcending a painful experience, which I think is a sort of universal story, really, and why it has this enduring appeal. But where was the controversy? So I was just coming to that. The coda to this happy ending is that it's been heavily criticised, especially by black men, for portraying the male characters as racial stereotypes. Um, Now, Alice Walker's response to that has always been that she was writing about a particular set of people, which seems bleeding obvious to me. I mean, that's all novels do or can do. Um, And this one does that very well. It's about a particular set of men and women. It is a very woman-centric story. And it is a story in which I think, you know, to the extent that a black woman can have a happy ending in the world of this novel uh, she does. All right. And your third choice, please. Well, um, when I say the name Toni Morrison, um, you can guarantee that anything by her is going to be both superlatively brilliant and also to have been banned somewhere at some point. I've already done Beloved and I think Alex might have mentioned it one or two times as well. So I've decided to go for Paradise today. It has, I think, one of the punchiest opening lines ever. So it goes something like, they shoot the white girls first, with the rest they can take their time, which if that doesn't set up a book that you want to turn the pages on, I don't know what does. It opens with the men from this all-black town called Ruby in Oklahoma, breaking in to murder a group of women living in a convent on its outskirts. And then it kind of unspools the story of how Ruby came to be settled and how the woman came to be at the convent. Now, I'm going to summarise the controversy about this book by telling you one of my favourite stories about it, which is apparently when it was selected for Oprah's book club, readers almost rebelled against Oprah, if you can imagine such a thing. People were apparently having a hard time making any sense of this book. And so Oprah had to get Tony on the phone, according to the, the sort of gossip, and ask what advice she had for one reader who said she was, and I quote, struggling with page 19. And Tony Tony's response was, read page 20, which I just think is brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Typical Tony Morrison. That is good advice. The thing it sort of brings home for me is that Tony recognised that the success of the kind of book she was writing would be measured by the hostility of the respondents. You know that thing. Sometimes the book is going to stir up some trouble to do its work. 
Uh, well, fantastic choices. Thank you very much, Sarah. And if you've been too busy putting the neighbors' gnomes in different karmasutra positions to note down the books we mention, don't worry. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books we talk about right there. All right, let's wrestle with the White Tiger. Here to talk about it are part-time librarian and full-time phone salesman, Jeff Watson. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Graham. Former teacher, now social worker and timeline maker, Gavern Bennett. Good day. Oh, hi, Graham. <laughs> You're all good. <laughs> uh, lecturer and Instagram book reviewer, Dr. Gabby Humphreys. Hello again. That still feels good. Keep doing Don't it. So. I will, yes. Uh, former book blogger and bookseller, and now National Health Service Administrator, Jared Leachman, who chose the book for us. So, uh, Jared, The White Tiger, what was it about this book that appealed? I think everyone goes through a bit of a phase where they want to read all the Man Booker winners. So I think I just randomly started with this one, being like, I'm going to read all the Man Booker winners. <laughs> Didn't make it past this one. But, um, yeah. <laughs> That's not an indictment on the book, though. Um, I think it appealed to me because it's set in a country that I haven't been to, have no knowledge of, yet it speaks to so many experiences of life over here. Because of our class system here, I think the caste system is a little easier for a British person to understand. I feel like a lot of people in this country feel similar in terms of finding it difficult to not just make a mark, but just to have a place. We can't even afford houses nowadays. I guess also to feel value. Uh, Gavern, could you relate to the the characters and the situations in this book? Uh, this 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 book just it completely blindsided me because the first bit is really funny, right? Okay, so I was laughing and laughing and laughing, and then it just shifts. I've not been to India, but I got a whole sense of what it is to be in different positions within the caste system there. So I was just like engrossed with this book. You know, I I just you know one of those books you kind of you finish it, you put it down, and you just keep looking at it. Because you just can't believe so much. You've learned so much about culture, a place. But, I mean, Gerard, thank you. I could go on about this book for days. Okay, uh, people finding it very relatable so far. Uh, Gabby, was it easy to get into this book? Uh, no. <laughs> no, it, it <laughs> we can wasn't tell when Gabby sighs. <laughs> yeah, it's a sigh first. Of, oh, I'm going to be the bad person. So, for me, I, I did warm to this book throughout but I, I can't lie, it took me four attempts to get into it. Um, I started on paper, I then went to the audiobook, and the start of this book was such an information overload. You're, you're thrown right in to this really like busy environment and so many new characters at once, and I ended up listening to this half an hour and thinking I've taken nothing in and starting again and starting again. But did the effort pay off? Kind of. I, I was surprised by the end. I did enjoy it. Didn't love it to the same extent of Gerard and Gavern, but I'm I'm glad I tried for that fourth time. <laughs> uh, all right, let's check in with uh, Jeff. How are you feeling about the White Tiger? So I tried reading it. I couldn't get into it. I tried doing the audio book. I couldn't get into it. I spoke to a friend of mine, and and she said, "Well, look, try watching the film because the film was a big hit." So. I watched the film. Yeah, I love the film. The film was great. 
but is significantly different oh. in again, there's yeah. a lot of different bits. So I then went back to the book and I then read the book and did the audio. Now that I've actually read it basically three or four times, I've got to say, <laughs> Jared, thank you very much for recommending it. It was worth the effort. <laughs> no problem. Okay? It really wow. was worth the effort. But it seriously was an effort. Um, no, I feel like reading shouldn't be this hard. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. Sarah, earlier on when she was picking uh, her books, she was talking about, uh, you know, the central characters and whether we like them or not. Um, Balram, you know, he's more than a lovable rogue. He, you know, he's a very difficult mm-hmm. person. How does everyone feel about having him as the central character? I'll start with you, Gabby. I think... That's the part that worked for me. So at the beginning, I think I hadn't got to know these characters yet. And it was his humour and commentary that really drew me in. I felt that he was an incredibly real character. Basically, I mean, I think it's okay to do little bits of spoilers here. He kind of like led to the death of the rest of, of everybody around him. He didn't feel fictional. He did actually feel real, which mm. I really appreciated. Mm. I don't think he's a nice person at all, but uh, I did actually believe him. You were nodding away there, Gavern. Oh, yeah, because that's why I like the novel, because he's like, typically in these novels, you get like an underdog, you know, a plucky underdog who kind of makes it. Mm-hmm. This guy is not that. At the end of it, I was like thinking, hang on, I really don't like this guy at all, but, <laughs> but I'm still interested because there's an element of truth there. There are certain things that happen with him where I was actually struggling to think, hang on, I can't understand this this guy's mind. And I realise it's because I don't understand the circumstances that he's in fully, right? And that's why I'm thankful to the writer because he's trying to give you, I think, a sense that morality is kind of variable in those circumstances. It's very variable. It depends on who you're talking to, what's going on, how much money is to be made, are you going to live? I mean, literally sometimes in this novel, literally, are you going to be able to live? So, yeah. Yeah. And Jared, what did you think of his kind of moral education, the way he, he kind of developed over the, the course of the story? It is one of those things where I had to keep remembering the scenario in which he grew up in and the environment in which he grew up in. It's one of those weird kind of juxtapositions where I think about, you know, certain things that have happened in this country and you go to work and people condemn like, Certain people for doing like certain crimes, it could be something as as petty as stealing or mm-hmm. and you know what I mean, yeah. like those type of things. And then you watch yeah. documentary set in a prison, they're interviewing these people, and when they're humanized, you're like, I don't agree with the way you think about things and your logic and the mm-hmm. way you see morals, but I can't hate on you considering you were born without a name, you were given a name mm-hmm. boy, and then you literally set up to fail your whole life like you didn't really have a chance so it's hard for me to sit here and judge but at the same time I just wish that he didn't have to be in that situation to then become the kind of person he Mm -hmm. became if you know what I mean do you think it was ever kind of because uh, one of the things that it surprises you know and actually Aravind talks about this how this guy is kind of unique in India, in that, you know, he's the rule breaker. Most people just go along with this terrible system. They don't kill their their master and stuff. Uh, I take the money. So uh, did you ever get to understand the other characters, the world outside of Balram? In terms of the other characters, I felt like I knew a couple of them, but I was very aware 
it felt all from one person's point of view, in this case, Balaram's point of view. And to me, it really felt busy, but that felt intentional. It felt rushed about. And um, I almost enjoyed feeling like I only got to really know one person. I think the busyness kind of like reflected the busyness of the whole society. Yeah. The way that it was Mm -hmm. actually operating there. It was very, very intense. Yeah. Everybody was focused on their survival, their own individual Mm -hmm. survival. And you could see that with various different characters at various different levels. I really enjoy reading books because it gives me an idea of other places. And this Uh really, really gave me an idea (laughs) of those other places. Not that I want to go there, but it does give me an idea. Yes. I wouldn't make it, yeah. Yeah. I don't think the Indian Tourism Board... (laughs) I'm thrilled with this no. book. <laughs> this Why is it up for the award? <laughs> um, just o- overall, in terms of, you know, it's where this book is placed in kind of Indian literature, is it just all by its own or is it kind of part of a tradition? Well, I think it's part of a tradition. I mean, I kind of detected um, shades of Salman Rushdie in this book. And I think Adiga has said that he was heavily influenced by Salman Rushdie. So you can see it in the playfulness with language and the kind of irreverence and the looking at India and shining a spotlight. But but interestingly, I also thought it sits very well in the kind of tradition of English literature as well, because mm-hmm. it reminded me of the great social climbing novels Uh, the ones that revolve around a kind of ruthlessness in the central character. So, you know, Becky uh, Sharp, at Vanity Fair. Thackeray mm. famously said there were no heroes in his novel. Mm-hmm. And also um, Tom Ripley, one of my favourite anti-heroes of all time. Oh, yeah. um, I saw really oh. sort of strong DNA from those books in, in this one as well. Um, all right, look, uh, let's find out how uh, likely people are to recommend it to somebody else. We'll kick off with Jeff. For somebody who's got the patience, I would give this a good eight. But from my experience, you've really got to work at it. <laughs> okay. If you've not got the patience. <laughs> uh, okay, we've got an eight. Uh, Gabby, what what sort of score are you giving it? I, I'll go with a six because it did really charm me. It, I did like it, but it just took so long to get into. And I think if it wasn't for a book club, I, I wouldn't have finished it after like, attempt number two. Uh, let's check in with Gavern uh, out of 10, please. 10 out of 10. Nice. Wow. I, I've, I've already given this to someone else because to me, it's like one of those window novels, you know, in a whole society, a whole place. Mm-hmm. This, this novel is funny, actually, yeah, until it, it goes is. wrong, <laughs> until it goes south. <laughs> but it is funny, so just on that level, you know. Nice. Yeah. And finally, Jared, how many points are you giving it? I think this will be my first 10. So I'm going to give it a 10 because I think it's just one of those books that should be studied like 100 years from now. I do think it's one of those staples of literature that everyone should read at least once. Uh, All right, that's The White Tiger. Time to find out what we're talking about next time. And it's Gabby's (sighs) choice. Yes. um, So so we're reading The Employees by Olga Rown. It's a very short book and it's, it's, as you'd expect, about work culture uh, productivity and burnout so it's very relevant today um but then there's a twist because it's set in space it is so unique <laughs> and i thought this would be a brilliant choice because um i'm sure our conversation will be interesting it will divide people <laughs> um but i i think this just this book pushes what 
a fiction can be. So that's The Employees by Olga Round. We'll be talking about that next time. In the meantime, thank you, Clubbers, and talk to you along the way. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Now, time for Talking Books. And here's someone who's worked up a bit of an appetite. Rupert was starving, having had only two cups of black coffee for breakfast. Seeing him standing alone, a tall girl with long gold-red hair, large hazel eyes, tawny freckled skin and a full, sweetly smiling mouth, came over and introduced herself. I'm September West. Everyone calls me Timber. I work for the chairman. Would you like a drink? I could murder a triple whiskey, admitted Rupert. I'm afraid we don't offer alcohol. Ryan doesn't like the players drinking. But hang on a sec. She returned a couple of minutes later, saying, Black tea, and handing him a mug full of whiskey. When we spoke to Jilly Cooper about her seminal work, Riders, back in our third series, she told us she was working on a new novel all about football. And she wasn't lying, because Tackle, as it's called, has just come out. In it, her beloved anti-hero, Rupert Campbell Black, former rider, racehorse owner and the handsomest man in England, has bought an ailing local football club and, with his usual competitive drive, sets out to conquer the Premier League. As if that wasn't appealing enough as a concept, the brilliant Catherine Parkinson, she of the IT crowd, Doc Martin, significant other, humans and many other roles, has voiced the audiobook. In fact, Catherine is currently steeped in all things Cooper as she's starring in the forthcoming TV adaptation of Rivals, Julie Cooper's sequel to Riders. So this was an unmissable combination. I caught up with Catherine and started with whether this book was a bit of a departure for Julie. I mean, it's very different in that she hasn't written about the world of football before, so and it's very much about <laughs> football. Um, <laughs> and, um, I also think... It's so lovely spending time with her writing, just as it is having got to know her a little bit, spending time with her as a sort of cosy glamour. And uh, I feel very invested in her world. I believe in her world, you know. And But I don't think there was much sex in it. It's sort of very sexy and there's lots of interesting, you know, sort of dynamics. But I only remember blushing because I, I had a male engineer for some of it. <laughs> I remember blushing a couple of times. So I don't think there's as much sex, perhaps, as as she's come to be known for. But it's the same sort of well-observed, humorous, wry, warm, cosy glamour that I think she's come to be known for. We interviewed her on this podcast uh, a while back. And I think she's sort of shocked by how... (laughs) How raunchy the early novels are. Well, because I dipped into Rivals uh, once I was <laughs> once I was on board with that. And I was quite taken aback and absolutely loved it and slightly felt sad I hadn't found it when I was younger because I suppose I didn't read Jilly Cooper books in front of my brothers because it was so famous for being a bit naughty. But I found them genuinely erotic, I have to say, because I think, sorry, I do apologise. <laughs> Uh, appalled that I've just said that but I did because it's written from a female perspective and it's delicately done but now in Rivals obviously playing one character now in Tackle you're playing them all how difficult I'm particularly struck by kind of posh men if you've got a posh man talking to another posh man how hard is that for you oh god well so 
audiobooks are quite hard. I, I haven't done loads, but I've done a few recently and I, I do find them quite rigorous. And I think there are some people who are very gifted at accents and I would say I'm average and I'm fine when I um, have time to work on it. But when they jump around with each other, so you're suddenly having a conversation as a uh, footballer from Sierra Leone with... <laughs> with uh, Rupert Campbell Black and then he's talking to the wag who is talking to the stable hand from Devon who is also talking to the stable hand from from Czechoslovakia you know forgive me dear readers (laughs) listeners dear listeners I was utterly invested in the story but I I think some of my accents probably ended up being better than others but I kept thinking the characterization is what counts and uh, also I'm not actually proper posh and well, I'm lower middle class and went to grammar school and then sort of uh, climbed my way socially at Oxford as far up as I could get. So I don't feel I can do the proper posh that she's talking about. I'm doing a kind of common person's take on it, but I think that will appeal to the masses anyway. Because where does it rank, like, as for an actor, where, how is it? You know, because it's not a full performance, you're not fully... <laughs> immersed in these characters. So is it an add-on to acting or is it just another acting job? How do you feel about the process of doing an audiobook? Well, I think what I find is I really commit in the first couple hundred pages and then the last 50 pages (laughs) I've given up. (laughs) Uh, And then all the accents seem to be remarkably similar. Uh, But no, I think uh, I find it hard to not just try and go all all in. (laughs) Yeah. And is there a level, you know, you mentioned the engineer, is there a level of kind of embarrassment where you're suddenly aware, oh, there is someone on the other side of that glass? I mean, there was for me. He was very nice. I had a, a female engineer and then a male engineer, but the male engineer seemed to be there for the sex bits. And and they creep up on you in, in Jilly's writing. So suddenly somebody's got a penis in their hand and <laughs> you don't see it coming. Uh, but no, I, I, you know, you don't have to look at the guy in the eye or anything. I mean, I did. I insisted on it, but you don't have to do that. <laughs> and let's talk about uh, reading that isn't allowed or maybe it was uh, a book in your life that when you were young kind of made you think oh I love books I, I, love, I want to read more well I mean I thought about lying when I answered this question to say something that made me sound better but I mean there were two books I remember really turning me on to reading one was Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley <laughs> and, oh, and the wow. other one was Down and Out in Paris and London which I think must have just been lying around in the house. And, uh, you know, I've always, I think partly because my life deals with fictional things, I really enjoy, I enjoy um, nonfiction, you know, I enjoy reading memoirs. And I think, you know, Down and Out in Paris and London felt like a sort of a very kind of fantastical memoir. And, you know, he sort of deliberately is homeless, basically, George Orwell. And, and, yeah. How old, how old are you when you discovered that book? I mean, I don't know, probably about 11 or 12, I think. Wow. I mean, that's quite a window on the world for an 11-year-old. <laughs> I loved Crime Watch. Um, you know, uh, I was quite sort of seeking out the things I felt I shouldn't be reading. I wish I'd gone to Jilly, though. <laughs> so. um, is there, and it may not be, is there a book that you find comfort in if you kind of, if you're, you know, you just want a hug from a book? Do you have one? I do. Well, I, I mean, Jane Eyre is one of them. I know that's not a very original answer, but I, I never get bored of Jane Eyre particularly the sort of first section of it when she's a girl. And and the final book we're looking for is the one you recommend to everyone or you think everyone should read, you gift to people. I love a book uh, by Kate 
Gross, who was a, a sort of acquaintance of mine at university. I didn't know her as well as I'd like to have done, but I knew her a bit. And she uh, sadly passed away in her 30s, but she was a speechwriter for Tony Blair and was just this kind of golden, golden girl. And uh, she's written... It's not at all a cancer memoir at all. It's called Late Fragments. And it's it's one of the most uplifting books because it's essentially about how the gift that it does give you is sort of knowing how to live, you know, and uh, I really do recommend it. Catherine Parkinson on her own reading favourites and her audiobook rendering of Jilly Cooper's new blockbuster, Tackle. And if you'd like to hear from Jilly herself and you're an Audible subscriber, then do track down episode six of series three and she can tell you all about how lovable rogue Rupert Campbell Black came to be. It is nearly time for us to get Jeeves to bring round the rolls, but before we get chauffeured off, handbrake turning into view is audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson. Holly, who is grinding your gears in the chart world? I love the idea that I could do a handbrake turn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have a book that will not budge from the charts. It's been sticking around on the most read and most sold fiction. It's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Now, I know you had this as a book of the week in your last series. Perhaps that's why it's so high in the charts. Probably. Um, This has over 600,000 ratings on Goodreads and won the Goodreads Choice Award for the Best Fiction 2022. So it's been out since July 22. But honestly, I had to double check that because I've seen it on the charts so often that I thought it must have been out longer. Uh, Gabrielle is currently writing the screenplay to this, and I think it might actually get made, um, as opposed to when the rights get bought and then just sit around. Uh, It's a video game heavy book about friendship with some real world things and then some virtual reality parts. And after Ready Player One, we know that those elements can be super successful. I must say, I loved this book. I've recommended it to so many people. I just think it's great, great, great. All right, what's our one to watch? High on the humour chart in both audio and print, we have a novel, Good Material, by journalist, podcaster and author Dolly Alderton. Dolly has such a dedicated fan base online and lots of love from other influencers around this release as well. So I think it could do really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's only been out since the start of November 23, so still fairly early days. It is being described as an account of heartbreak, which will make you laugh and cry. And with quotes on the blurb from Claudia Winkleman and Ashling B, it's pretty damn tempting. It is. Actually, you know, we were all set to get Dolly on to talk about the audiobook, uh, but she doesn't read it because it's all written from <laughs> it's all written from a man's point of view. Uh, so Arthur Darvel does the bulk of it with Vanessa Kirby, you know, from The Crown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she does a little bit at the end. There you go. Uh, what's our final mover and shaker? To finish off, I wanted to spotlight one in the sports, hobbies and games chart. For any cricket lovers or those who need to buy a Christmas present for any cricket lovers, um, we've got Stuart Broad's autobiography, Broadly Speaking. He had a very successful career and retired after the ashes this year. So this book feels like it's probably marking the start of a new chapter in his life. Oh, chapter. I hear you. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you so very much. much, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. 
clubbers have gone off to have a penalty shootout to decide who will play Rupert Campbell Black in the forthcoming book club adaptation of Tackle. My money's on Jeff. So it just remains for me to thank Sarah Collins for helping me get another edition of the book club in the back of the net. Thank you. I'm not sporty, so I'll just be off to buy a hat now, I think. Yeah, give Camilla my love. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't forget, as if you could, that this series of the Graham Norton Book Club podcast is available on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. Just click follow and you won't miss a show. This will make it easier for you to join us next time when our book is Olga Rounds The Employees. And we'll be talking to diva of the dance floor himself, Johannes Radebe, about the audiobook of his inspirational memoir, Finally Home. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.